It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if husband number two doesn't like her either, and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband, husband number two, dies, and then her former husband, husband number one, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." So, again, not a lot. That's all the law has to say about divorce, other than there are some specific things concerning the requirements for priests and some things like that relative to divorce. But basically, what this passage, Deuteronomy 24, says is, if a husband gives his wife a certificate of divorce, writes it up and gives it to her, that's what you're supposed to do, and it doesn't really isn't clear exactly what the grounds would be in those days. He finds some uncleanness in her, and he's not pleased with her. Now, what does that mean? The Jews argued about that, but at any rate, it says if that happens and she goes and finds somebody else, and, and then that doesn't work out either, you're forbidden to go back and, and get married again to the person that you've, you failed to, to work it out with them in the first place, don't create this series of mistakes to compile together. It's kind of interesting. There are some people who teach that if you've been married to someone, that you're only allowed to be married to that one person. And, you know, if, you find, if you've remarried, divorced and remarried, what you're supposed to do is leave that spouse and go back and marry your original person. Well, that was a, something that was an abomination before God. So, don't believe that. People have dreamed this up. But they did argue, okay, what is the uncleanness? What is it that you're allowed to see in someone now in order to justify divorce? There were two basic schools within Judaism at the time of Christ concerning this. There was one rabbi, Rabbi Shammai, who taught that an uncleanness would have to be some moral failure, some sort of, of offense regarding, um, you know, disobeying some moral or sexual command or something like that, and that would be grounds for divorce. His, one of his students, Rabbi Hillel, came up with a more liberal position that said, basically, if there's something she does that bugs you, dump her. It's okay. You know, and, and Hillel even said that if she burns dinner, that might be grounds for divorce. So within the Jews, they didn't ever debate whether or not you could get a divorce. What they debated on is what, it ever, what, it would, what would be sufficient grounds. By the way, they also never debated whether or not you could remarry. To the Jews, of course, if you get a divorce, it's okay to remarry. Um, but, so that was never a discussion. That came up later um, within Christianity. But for the Jews, that wasn't a concern. So you have that situation, and this is where Jesus comes along. And several times the, the uh, Jews tried to trap him by saying, what is it, Shammai or Hillel? Which of these is 
correct. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll see what Jesus had to say concerning marriage and divorce. One of the things he had to say. Now, keep in mind, Matthew chapter 5 is a passage of Scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's where Jesus establishes the standards for absolute righteousness, the way it's going to be during the millennium, the way it would be in a perfect world, the way that it it, it lets us see his heart. Now, he isn't establishing specific rules of conduct necessarily for today. He's laying out absolute ideals. It's important to note that because there are people who will take what he says here and make it something that this is an absolute rule that we need to live by today. And all I would say, without arguing with you about that, all I would say is check the context and read it. Right before he says what he's going to say about marriage and divorce, he says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. He also says, by the way, that if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's already guilty of adultery. He also says, if you say you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. So in that context, he says this, verse 31, Matthew chapter 5. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, this isn't all that easy to interpret. Usually we look at it and go, okay, one grounds for divorce would be adultery, because Jesus says in cases of sexual immorality, that's an exception to the rule that you're not supposed to get a divorce. A couple of things, though, notice that he uses the word pornia, which is the word that we usually translate fornication. That's a a really broad word. We get the word pornography from that word, and it doesn't just mean committing adultery. It's a much broader word to describe any sort of sexual misconduct. Um, People argue today, and I and I don't. I can't solve this for you, but does this include? a person who devotes himself to pornography, who becomes addicted to pornography, and that affects their relationship. And, you know, I can't say. All I, all I can say is I can certainly understand how someone could get that from reading the Scripture. And so don't look, any of you guys who want to do that and then hide behind me to tell your wife she has to stay with you, I'm not going to help you. My advice to guys is if you want to stay married, don't look at pornography How about loving your wife? Treat her like you're supposed to, then you'll be fine. But beyond that, he says, it's a little difficult because he says, if you do it, you cause your wife to commit adultery. Now, that's kind of difficult to understand. He certainly can't be saying that if a man divorces his wife, his wife is guilty of something based on the fact that he has committed that. What he's saying, I think, is he's using the description or the word adultery, not just to designate a specific sin or an act of something that's wrong, because that wouldn't make sense. But what he's, he's using adultery in the broader sense of the term that anything that 
that steps outside of what God's original plan was, two people getting married and staying married. Now someone is forced to leave and to find plan B. If you're the one who did that to them without biblical cause, without just reason, you're setting them up to have to be involved in something that's tearing apart what God never wanted to be torn apart. But again, books are written on trying to interpret this scripture. I just want to point it out. It's there. Jesus takes a a firm stand. He allows for this exception that isn't that easy to exactly, precisely define, but he uses a much broader term than adultery. And so you have that there. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 19. And the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus into answering this question. And so often, I feel like it is a trap when people want to know specifically what are grounds for divorce and what does it take. And it's really hard to nail that down and define it. And, and I think God, rather than doing that, says, why don't you go do what it takes to be married, and then we don't have to talk about this. But in Matthew 19, Jesus was talking, a lot of people were following him, and in verse 3, the Pharisees came to him, testing him, and said to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? In other words, is Rabbi Hillel correct in what he is asserting? And Jesus said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, without answering the question, says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm in favor of marriage. As far as I'm concerned, we shouldn't even be having this conversation. It shouldn't happen. But they said to him, well then, Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So what's divorce for? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now, I want you to remember something. This wasn't Moses doing it. This was God doing it. It was a part of the law. He said, Originally, God didn't, wouldn't have wanted that to happen, but, but it, was a, it was permitted. And I say to you, well, because of the hardness of your hearts, because people, God knew that people would refuse to do what he told them to do, what it would take to stay married, then he made this accommodation. But he really would have rather had it never happen. So he said to them, I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, violates this standard, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And the disciples are like, whoa, this is even stricter than, than what, what Shammai would say. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They're like, What? And then Jesus went on to talk to them about celibacy. He goes, well, here's an option for you. (laughs) And leaving them kind of like, wow, what's going on? But Jesus wanted to make it clear. Anything that violates my plan, God's original plan for a man and a woman, is something that steps outside the realm of what's best. 
of what God would want. And there's a tearing away. There's, a, there's an adulterating of the image that God has designed for marriage. So again, now coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's why in light of what he just said, that here's how marriage is supposed to be. If you love each other, if you give of yourselves to each other, if you'll just keep your marriage vows, the promise to, to love each other and to consider each other, then you're not going to have a problem. And so he says again, God has already made this clear. He's against divorce. Now, but you go, but wait a minute, God permitted divorce. Yeah, but he didn't want it to happen. In Malachi chapter 2, and people will quote this verse often, it says God hates divorce. But if you read it in context, what he's saying is you've been dealing with the wife of your youth in a treacherous way. You're mistreating her. The result of your treating your wife badly is divorce, and I hate the fact that that's had to happen. I hate the fact that your treachery is leading to your marriage breaking up. So God always hates that, and Paul wants to make that clear. God is not, he doesn't want it to be this way. But he says, if it works out to where you find yourself in this situation, hang in there and see if God's going to do something. Don't rush off and get immediately involved with someone else. Give it some time, and we'll see why as we read on in the passage. Beginning with verse 12 now, he says, Now, to the rest, he's going, okay, I've laid the ideal out, but now let's deal with where you're at, where the hardness of people's hearts can sometimes put you. To the rest, I, not the Lord. That is, Jesus didn't really speak specifically on this issue, but I'm telling you, I say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. In Corinth, no doubt, there were a lot of people who were married to pagans because they were pagans. And now they accepted the Lord and they're in an unequal yoke. They're married to someone who doesn't know the Lord, doesn't appreciate and respect the things of the Lord. They're in a mess. And they no doubt were asking Paul, should we bail? Should we get out of this marriage, this unequal yoke? And what he's saying is, well, not necessarily. Now, he will give an out ultimately, but he says, first of all, if they consent to dwell with you, or as he says here, um, if they're willing to live with you, I like the, the King James rendering of this better, if they're pleased to dwell with you, because there's something missed. It's not just about if they're willing to live with you. This isn't a word, I believe, that's just saying, as long as they're willing to be under the same roof with you, then you're stuck with them. But that word that in our translation is translated willing is a, a word in the Greek that very specifically, it's sometimes translated in other literature, applaud. It means that they are with you celebrating. It's to think good with someone is literally the, the uh, etymology of the word. But it's a, in order to get an idea of of how this word is used, over in Acts chapter 8, you can look over there if you'd like. 
or I will turn there. If you're like, Acts, where is that? Don't worry. In Acts chapter 7 was the first martyr of the church, Stephen. As he was being stoned for his faith, there was a guy named Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul who ended up writing this book of 1 Corinthians that we're studying. But after him being stoned and, and he's praying, Lord, don't lay this, don't charge these people with this sin. And then he died. It says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. And it goes on to talk about the persecution that was happening. And, and a bit later we find out Saul's conversion. That word is the same word that's translated here in 1 Corinthians 7 as, as being willing. It was a lot more than being willing. This is somebody who's into it, who's celebrating it, who's supporting it, who is behind it with everything that they are. The same word's also used over in Romans chapter 1, and I'll just turn over there because I don't want to run out of time here, but, but it's important to, to get this. In Romans chapter 1, when it's talking about people who are doing all these horrible things, it lists all these gross sins. In verse 32, and then it says, people know the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, but they not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. So it's listing all these gross moral sins, and it says what's, what's just as bad is you're sitting there and you see people doing them and you're clapping. You're supporting them. That word for approve is the same word that's used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for willing. And by the way, the word live there, dwell is is what the King James translated. It's not a word that just means to be under the same roof with someone. It means to be at home with someone. So where am I going with all of this? What I, what I want to point out is he is addressing people who are in a relationship whereby the other person is supportive. The other person is, is, is applauding. They're happy to, they're trying to get along with you. They're working on this relationship, but they're an unbeliever. The word there that's used for unbeliever doesn't necessarily mean someone who isn't a Christian. It's basically somebody who doesn't get it, who isn't going along with it. It's the same word, apistis, that's used in the Gospel of John when after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas, goes, yeah, I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe he's alive until I put my finger in the hole in his hand from his wound and, and see the wound in his side. And Jesus showed up later, and Thomas was there. And Jesus said, hey, Thomas, heard what you said. There's the hole. Go for it. Put your finger in. And he said, don't be unbelieving, but believe. That's the same word. It, it's basically, I think, saying there are some people who just don't understand and they don't get it, and they haven't come to that position of faith. In most cases, certainly, it's referring to people who aren't saved, but it can refer to anyone who really isn't understanding God's standard for marriage and what it is. And so what he's saying is, if they are willing to dwell with you, if they are consenting together with you. They're in it with you. They just don't understand. Don't immediately 
you know, throw them out or leave them. Now, what is the application of this and what's the meaning? It's something that you'll have to do in your own heart. But let me say this. I don't believe that God would give a shred of support for someone who wants to use Scripture like a hammer and say, I am going to treat you like dirt and you have to stay with me because God says so. Even with an unbeliever here, Paul's saying, if they're willing to get along with you and do what it takes to, if they're pleased to dwell with you, then by all means, give it a chance. And he goes on to say why. Personally, I mean, clearly, if somebody's involved in some sort of sexual offense of of some kind, I don't think it's hard to discern from the scriptures that you don't need to stay with someone like that. Now, you can forgive them and, and continue to try to minister to them and help them, but God says, you don't have to do that. I also personally, and later on he's going to say, if they decide to leave, well, you can let them go. And, and that too, most people would say, okay, there's two clear things, sexual misconduct or desertion. But I would, for me, I would never tell a woman, for instance, who's being abused, you have to stay there and be abused. To me, if a, if a man is endangering a woman, then she, of course, common sense should tell us, you don't just stay there and let him kill you. You don't let him just completely abuse you. That isn't agreeing to dwell with you. That isn't being willing to work with you. And so that's my personal interpretation of it. I, I understand there are people who are in horrible situations, and, and, and I'm not sure, and I can't interpret. I don't tell people whether, okay, you can okay, you can divorce, you can't. But I'll tell you this, I am through telling people that they have to stay in a situation when their partner will not do what God says to do. And this is why, um, you know, last week I told you about Pastor Romaine's counseling when he said to a guy who, who was crying because his wife left him, and he said, good. And he goes, good, why is it good? He goes, why did she leave you? Was it because you were loving her like Christ loved the church? Is that what drove him out of the house? And to me, we need to turn this thing around and go, and I, and I do, and I do this almost every day when I talk to a husband who's going through something like this, and I will say to him, so why does she want out? Why didn't she want to stay with you? Is it because you're so nice? Is it because you're, you're obeying what God tells you to do? The Bible de- does not have a way of making a marriage work if you won't do what God says. It just doesn't. Now, what do you do with that? I don't know. And I won't answer those questions for you. I won't solve those issues for you. But I will not defend somebody who's not treating their spouse the way the Bible says you're supposed to treat them. And I just go, you know, God's going to have to speak to you. And, you know, I don't want, you know, anybody to go, you know, Dave made me feel like now I ought to get a divorce. No, I, I'm, I'm with Jesus. Like, don't do that. I want to see your marriage work. I believe that no matter how bad your marriage is, God can heal it. But at the same time, I'm saying, look, don't use God's word as a hammer because that's not the way it's designed. So he says here, though, if they're working with you and they're not a believer, Hey, don't just jump to throw them out because, verse 14, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. 
What does that mean? Whole books have been written on this verse, so I probably won't fix it for you today, and I'm sure I'll hear from people who think I botched it completely, but my best take on the verse is he's saying, you know what? If you have someone living with you who's getting along with you and they're open and, and you're loving them the way God tells you to love them, they're in a special place. He goes on to say, how do you know? Maybe they'll get saved because of your testimony. But someone who, and there are many of you here today who know this firsthand because you were married to someone who was a Christian and you weren't. And you saw the witness that they had in your life. You saw the way they treated you and how it ministered to you and made a difference in your life. And so, you know, he would say, hey, look, they're in a special place in the same way that your kids are in a special place. Now, just because a kid's born to a Christian doesn't mean they're saved. They have to find their own relationship with the Lord, but they are in a special, honored place. They're set apart, holy in a sense. They're dedicated to the Lord, and that's a huge advantage. And so he's saying, if you have someone that you're married to and you have this opportunity to show them the love of Christ, don't turn away from that opportunity. They're in a special place. There's a real advantage and there's a way that God may work in their life. Now he says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let them depart. Hey, if they won't hang with you, let them go. That's fine. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. It's not, marriage isn't something that is supposed to chain you and force you into a situation. Uh, not under bondage. God has called us to peace. God wants us to have relationships that glorify Him. And He wants us to have a life whereby when you come home at night, it feels, oh, nice. That's what He's shooting for. That's what He's trying to give you. But He's going, you might be in a situation where your spouse doesn't get it yet. But here's what God wants to do for verse 16. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, maybe if you act like a Christian, maybe they'll want to be a Christian. Maybe if they say they're a Christian, but they're, they're just complete creeps. Maybe if you're loving enough to them, maybe it'll change them. Maybe it'll turn them around. They're certainly in a real special and unique place. That can happen. And so as a result, he said, don't be quick to get out of this. Now, at the same time, yeah, don't fight to force them to stay. Don't beg them. Love them. Peter, over in 1 Peter chapter 3, talks about this for a woman, and he says, sometimes you might even be able to win him without a word, without saying anything about Jesus, just by being kind and loving and acting the way a wife is supposed to act, you might win your husband over. That's the same idea that he has here. Hey, don't be so quick to separate yourself in a situation where maybe if you just do what God tells you to do, it'll have that kind of an impact on the person. And believe me, the best thing, you're in a marriage where your spouse is just way out there and you're trying to follow God. The best thing in the world would be for that marriage to be healed, for God to do a miracle, for, for them to change. And then you go back to the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and now you're giving yourself to each other. You're dedicated to satisfying each other's needs and, and making life nice and wonderful for each other. And hey, you're in a great spot. And he goes, don't give up on that so easily. Don't let go of that no matter what's happening. 
Now in this next section, and we're going to look at it quickly because we're running out of time, but it's important to understand in light of all this, beginning with verse 17, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. He goes, everybody has to find their own position in this, what your calling is, where God has you, the place he has put you. And, and as an example, he uses circumcision. Was anyone called while circumcised? Please don't become uncircumcised. I don't even know if you, they offer that. <laughs> was anyone... Oh, I'm sure there's some plastic surgeon, but... Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Don't become circumcised. It's not circumcision that's anything or uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So he says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Stay where he found you first. Start here. He goes on to say, were you called while a slave? Don't be all concerned about it. If you can get your freedom, hey, great, go for it. But he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. He makes you free whether you're a slave or not. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. What's he saying and how does this fit in? What, what he is saying, I believe, is, you know what? Don't go back and try to fix and unravel whatever's happened up to this point. Don't sit there and, and do these computations as to exactly, okay, what do we do now? What he's saying is, okay, when God gets a hold of you, when he calls you, start where you are and now obey his commandments and do the right thing. Because there are people who, and I'm sure in a group this size, there are a lot of people who, if they had really done what God tells us to do here, they might still be married to somebody else three marriages ago or whatever. Or they might found out that they would be better off being single, but now they're married. What do we do? Or I should have married that person if I had understood. I he goes, now, start right now. Maybe you have all kinds of ugly baggage from the past. And maybe somebody has heaped condemnation on you because of where you're at right now. But he would say, what you need to do is figure out what you're supposed to do right now and do that. And if you're married right now, don't let somebody analyze whether or not you should be. You're married. You promised. You said you would do this. Now do it. Obey him. Treat your spouse the way he tells us to over in the beginning of the chapter. Obey God. Do what he says. Don't be one of these people that just wants to evaluate and analyze everything. Just do what God says with where you are. If you're single right now, great. Don't be rushing to, oh, I got to get married. No, how about being single the way God tells you to be single? And we'll see some of that next week. Discover that beauty. Don't think, oh, I got to get married. You're married? Oh, I got to get out of here. No, I, don't even do that. You don't need to go. Just the state that you're called, God has called us to peace. And what God wants for each of us ultimately is something that's going to be a complete blessing for us in our lives. But if we live our lives looking over our shoulder, we'll never find that. He would just say, let's forget everything that's happened up until now, and let's start doing what God tells us to do right now and put the focus on that. And if we do that, 
be amazed how many problems would be solved automatically. See, you can spend, you can just, till you're blue in the face, you can argue with people to get them to do what you think they ought to do, to conform to what your understanding of what the Scripture says. People fight about this stuff all the time. And yet, it's absolutely true. We wouldn't even have that conversation. We wouldn't even need to unravel that discussion if people who are married would just do what God says to do, if we would love each other, if we would minister to each other. Now, but what happens if he doesn't? What happens if she doesn't? I don't know. There's, the Bible doesn't give us a bunch of ideas of what do you do if somebody won't follow God? It's like, God, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to do what you say. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. You either do what God says or you don't. It's that simple. If you don't do what he says, you're unfaithful. You're an unbeliever. And I wouldn't blame somebody for just going, there's only so much of that I'm going to take. You know, Peter talks about the fact that if somebody doesn't provide for their household, or no, Paul does, they're worse than an infidel, same word for unbeliever. So how about just living like you believe? How about just doing what God tells you to do? Do that, the rest of the stuff, leave it to the theologians to argue about it. You're not going to be worrying about whether you have grounds for divorce if you're not doing stupid stuff to each other. If you're, you know, if you're a guy and, and you're often treating your wife like dirt, then you ought to worry. If you're a guy and you're, and you're looking at pornography, or if you're a woman and you're not just loving your husband and making him feel happy to come home every day, then you ought to worry about what they're going to do. Because people's hearts are hard. But if we do what God tells us to do, that works. And I'd just suggest that you start doing that today to the best of your ability as God gives you the strength to do it. Eliminate the arguments and just start obeying God. Let's pray.